0: You're listening to The Diplomats Podcast on Asian geopolitics. As always, I'm your host, Ankit Panda from New York.
1: And this is Prashant Warren from Washington, D.C.
0: Thanks for joining me, Prashant. How are you doing today?
1: Good. How are you doing?
0: I'm doing well. Um, looking forward to uh, our discussion today. Uh, and I think we're going to take the podcast back to some of its early uh, roots. Uh, some of the early subscribers to the podcast might recall that we'd often use this broad geopolitics podcast to just go through some trends um, across the Asia Pacific region. And we're kind of revisiting that today. A lot of our previous episodes have focused on kind of one big thing. Uh, This time, we're going to broadly talk about the theme of naval developments across the Asia Pacific region, which I know is something that readers of The Diplomat and listeners of this podcast are both quite interested in. So we'll try to do a fairly broad sweep. So uh, just, you know, I'll, I'll kind of outline some of the topics that we're going to talk about, um, and then you can uh, jump around if you're interested in something that's coming up later, but not at the beginning. So we'll actually start off our discussion with talk about China's second aircraft carrier, its first indigenously developed carrier. Um, we didn't get to that on the podcast in April, but it's something that I think would be good for the two of us to talk about, Prashant, um, and then we'll talk about the uh, Index Expo in Singapore and um, uh, Singapore's acquisition of submarines. Uh, Then we'll talk about an interesting quadrilateral exercise that's going on uh, off Guam uh, involving the United States, the U.K., Japan, and France and their navies. Um, Then we'll briefly talk about the Malabar exercise between India, Japan, and the United States, and Australia's um, non-role this year, um, and some of the interesting dynamics there. And then we'll close a bit talking about Japan's um, helicopter destroyer, as they call it, the uh, Izumo, which is on a very interesting deployment this year to the Indian Ocean, where it will actually participate in Malabar. Um, So yeah, I guess, Prashant, let's Kick things off with this carrier. Um, got a ton of interest um, in kind of the Asia-watching community. Obviously, it was a major moment for the People's Liberation Army Navy, which has been building ships at a breakneck speed. Um, obviously, building an an aircraft carrier domestically is an important prestige achievement for any country. Um, in, in Asia, China was fairly late to the carrier game. Uh, India, notably, was uh, pretty much the only eastern power to have long-term experience um, operating carriers. Uh, you know, Thailand also has a, a small carrier. Um, but across Asia, I mean, really, uh-huh. for China, uh, this was an important moment. The carrier was launched in late April, a few days after the PLAN's um, founding anniversary. And, uh, you know, I should probably just briefly mention what launching a carrier like this means. Launching just means that the carrier was taken out of its dry dock and floated out to sea. Um, you know, they put nice streamers on it. There was a ceremony. Uh, the chief of the People's Liberation Army Navy was there. But this carrier is going to go through a ton of uh, fitting, you know, arresting gear for the Shenyang J-15 fighters, radars, guns. A lot of that still has to be added. And this probably won't be commissioned into the PLAN until uh, possibly 20, uh, 2019, 2020. Uh, so, yeah, Prashant, uh, you know, what's your take on the significance of this? Obviously, you know, we've seen a lot of commentary on this carrier. But, but you know, I mean, what's the what's the big picture takeaway for for you?
1: Yeah, I think the 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 big one is the fact that I mean the whole focus on this has been the fact that this is the first home-built indigenous aircraft carrier, right? Um because the the first one was sort of a refurbished Soviet carrier. Um so that's sort of been the 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 big uh, development in that sense. Um but it's also as you pointed out, uh these aircraft carriers are often seen um as prestige items for militaries. Um, when actually, in fact, if you look at the capabilities, they may actually not live up to some of them. I mean, the perfect example is Thailand, where, you know, Thailand has an aircraft carrier, but, you know, you, you talk to many people about this fact, and some of them don't even know that uh, Thailand has it. <laughs> right. <because laughs> it, it, it it hasn't been something that they've utilized or, or even maintained um, very well or, or significantly. And I think with respect to to China, some of the technology on, on, on board the carrier, you know, the, the sort of ski jump launch system that they have. And the fact that you know they haven't really developed, um, unlike, you know, say, I mean, the U.S. is kind of at the forefront of this. The U.S. not only has carriers, um, but they also have the experience required to operate them. They have um, an actual carrier force that mm-hmm. goes along with it. So China still has kind of a long way to go, but um, this is nonetheless seen as one Key uh, path towards developing this along the way.
0: Yeah, you know, I mean, uh, before we kind of move on to the other topics we have on the long agenda for today, I mean, one thing I'll say is that I think the point you bring up about um, experience is is hugely important when it comes to uh, carrier operations, and you know, there was talk uh, in kind of. 2011 2012 the whole idea of talking about China's aspirations to become a blue water navy was very much in vogue and what a lot of experienced kind of um, naval analysts were saying was that well you don't become a blue water navy overnight right you need mm-hmm. you need your carrier aviators you need your carrier sailor crews to uh, really accrue hundreds of hours of experience and uh, the Liaoning yep. the first carrier the uh, refurbished uh, Soviet Kuznetsov class uh, carrier you know, underwent its first kind of extra-regional deployment in uh, December 2016 when it kind of sailed through, it kind of, you know, weaved through the first island chain, going through the Miyako Strait, the Bashi Channel, two of those choke points that the PLAN and the People's Liberation Army Air Force worry about quite a bit, made its way down to the South China Sea to Hainan and then sailed back north to uh, its home port of Qingdao through the Taiwan Strait. And really, uh, you know, you you saw these um, operations kind of uh, taking place Um, And, look, I think what's going to happen with these first two carriers is that, look, they're not really impressive pieces of kit, right? They're they're much smaller. They're not nuclear-powered, so they can't be out at sea for extended deployments. Um, They're primarily, I think, intended as training platforms for sailors and aviators who will eventually, you know— serve on China's upcoming carriers. China will build more carriers. I think uh, the number that most people think is right is about six. You know, China will probably end up with mm-hmm. a six carrier force and they have, uh, they're going to have, you know, electromagnetic launch systems, nuclear propulsion coming up with their uh, next carriers. Not the, not the one that's being built now at, at Dalian. That one will still have a steam powered catapult, um, but it'll probably be a flat top still. Um, and, you know, there are s- a serious plans for China here um, to uh, become an expeditionary navy, uh, carrying out operations deep into the western pacific and carriers are a part of that but really i think a, a lot of the analysis that you see you know some of the articles that you see kind of putting pictures of a chinese carrier next to a Nimitz class or ford class carrier and comparing them today i think might be a little bit premature <laughs> yeah. Um, all right. Cool. Uh, so, I mean, that was a really short discussion, but you know, we gotta we gotta keep moving today. So, uh, Prashant, you know, let me ask you. a But uh, so, you wrote recently about uh, Singapore's acquisition of um, a couple uh, Type Two One Eight SG submarines. Uh, well, the the agreement to acquire the submarines in the future at uh, the MDEX exposition. Uh, now, these are pretty impressive. Uh, you know, German subs with uh, air independent propulsion. Uh, what's going on here with Singapore? What's the logic behind the uh, this procurement?
1: Yeah, so I think this is this is part of an existing effort by the Singaporeans who, you know, already have some of the the top maritime capabilities among small Southeast Asian states. Um, Singapore already has um, four submarines um, that it operates now, and uh, it already placed an order for two German submarines um, already um, back in 2013. So this is, you know, sort of doubling that order. Um, and Singapore the the previous submarines it's operated have come from the Swedish Navy and so this is really part of an ongoing effort to further boost um, Singapore's maritime and naval modernization Um, you know the the key issue here is um, you know that whenever this uh, these kinds of developments happen uh, neighboring states like you know Indonesia and Malaysia in the past have said oh I mean the Singaporeans are you know moving Rapidly ahead, um, and we're sort of catching up. what um, from the Singaporean perspective, I think the 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 plug um, and the big picture is the fact that naval budgets in the Asia Pacific are increasing significantly. Right. Um, and with other countries set to get submarines as well, I mean the the Thais have you know sort of ordered Chinese submarines. Um, a number of Southeast Asian countries are thinking about it right now. Vietnam has the most, which is six submarines from Russia. Um, Singapore feels like it needs to make sure that its fleet uh, keeps modernizing and it keeps increasing its capability. So that's sort of the rough um, big picture. Um, the other part of this that's interesting is the fact that um, there are all these announcements and um, big firsts that have been planned this year because it's the 50th anniversary of um, the Republic of Singapore Navy. Um, and so you've seen a, n- a number of activities planned. Singapore held its first ever international maritime review this year. Um, There's been a lot of focus on, you know, commissioning of certain vessels, uh, the first of Singapore's eight littoral mission vessels uh, that were introduced. And I think these two new submarines were also intentionally announced at this time when you had the... Uh, index uh, going on in Singapore because it's kind of a big-ticket announcement um, as Singapore is celebrating this this mm-hmm. anniversary as well.
0: Yeah, no, there's, uh, there's a lot of that going on. The uh, submarine proliferation act across Southeast Asia, I think, you know, merits a podcast in itself. It's an interesting procurement trend that's been going on for a few years now. Um, mm-hmm. All right, uh, so, you know, uh, keeping this discussion moving... Um, very briefly, I want to talk about this uh, pretty interesting exercise that's been going, off, uh, going on off um, the U.S. territory of Guam, uh, which has been in the news separately because of the North Korean missile test recently. Uh, but, you know, the U.S. Navy, the Royal Navy, um, the uh, Japanese Maritime Self-Defense Force, and the French Navy um, came together for a quadrilateral exercise focusing primarily on amphibious landing operations. But, you know, there was kind of this interesting messaging coming out of Pacific Command that talked about how... The exercise was meant to emphasize support for freedom of navigation, which, uh, you know, has kind of slowed down in a sense as a priority for uh, at least the Trump administration compared to 2016 um, in the Asia-Pacific. But it was an interesting exercise. I mean, you know, uh, we just had an episode on this podcast talking about France's interests in the Asia-Pacific, and this exercise comes right after the election of a new French president as well. Um, The Japanese participation is interesting, and France actually sent one of its uh, impressive uh, Mistral-class amphibious assault ships to this exercise, um, so, yeah, I mean, uh, I guess, you know, one other thing I'll say about this Guam exercise was it's actually pretty funny because it got suspended <laughs> indefinitely initially because, uh, and get this, a, uh, a French Navy landing craft uh, managed to somehow, quote unquote, run aground, which is exactly what a landing craft is supposed to do, but apparently it did so in a way that was... Huh. Um, not suitable to its continued operation, leading to the exercises being temporarily suspended. But, you know, um, I guess, you know, what do you make of the optics of an exercise like this, you know, involving kind of two extra regional powers, the UK and France and uh, Japan and the United States who are very much kind of experienced Pacific seafaring countries?
1: Yeah, I mean, I I think, two key things. First, uh, I think it it really emphasizes the fact that, um, you know, there are other extra regional powers apart from, you know, the United States and and some of the other countries we usually talk about in the podcast, but also, you know, France, the United Kingdom, these countries are important when you talk about uh, promoting freedom, promoting stability, ensuring freedom of navigation. We did a separate podcast on France and its role in Asia. Sometimes it it goes underappreciated, even though we we ought not to overstate um, these countries' military capabilities relative to more robust countries like the United States. I mean, it, it is important to also recognize their contributions as well. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the the second one is you know this broader trend of networking among alliances and multilateralization of exercises. You've seen U.S. defense officials uh, talk about this over the the past few years that the United States intends to um, have more multilateral exercises that are more complex with its existing alliance uh, allies and partners. And I think. This is another one of those examples where you have um, the United States taking on these more extensive exercises. It's also, I guess, a reminder that um, when you talk about the South China Sea or freedom of navigation, uh, you know, it's not only, uh, you know, freedom of navigation operations conducted by the United States that is the only metric by which you should judge the fact that these operations are going on. I mean, there are other things that go on as well. Right. Obviously, phone ups are significant. Um, but I think we, we shouldn't just limit our, um, our analysis to that.
0: No, absolutely. And actually, that's uh, something I've been uh, talking about with, uh, with a few other kind of analysts of the South China Sea, which is the idea that, you know, anecdotally, I mean, I haven't crunched the data on this, but anecdotally, it seems like US Navy presence operations uh, more broadly in the South China Sea have actually increased um, since yeah. 2016. Um, at least that's what it seems like to me, just following a lot of this. Um, but, you know, I think that's something that I'd like to dig a bit more into and see what's actually going on here. Um, one final note I'll note on this exercise is that the UK um, Actually, doesn't have any operational um, aircraft carriers right now. It's um, waiting for its uh, carriers to come back out after uh, after refitting and refurbishment. So uh, that's interesting. Not a not a yeah. good time for the UK in terms of global power with uh, Brexit and all that. So I guess the. The carrier situation just adds to that. Um, but, you know, your point on uh, tr- trilateralization um, networking, I think, is a good segue into the next topic on this podcast, um, which is the Malabar exercise. Right. We've also uh, discussed that um, pretty recently on this on this podcast. Um, it was uh, recently trilateralized. Uh, it was originally a U.S.-India bilateral uh, naval engagement, recently formally trilateralized to include Japan. It has included other countries in the past, most notably in the 2007 iteration, uh, which was uh, the biggest iteration in its um, in its history. And uh, that iteration you know, really spooked China. Um, it, it involved Australia, it involved India, the United States, Japan, um, and Singapore. And it really kind of made China feel then that there was this concert of democracies kind of coming together to contain it. Um, And what's interesting with this year's uh, iteration is, um, you know, not only the participation of Japan's largest warship, the JS Izumo, which we'll talk about um, later on the podcast, um, but, you know, Australia actually has been expressing all this interest to participate, but India has been lukewarm about the prospect of Canberra's participation. And uh, at least now it looks like, you know, Austria won't be permitted to even observe the exercise this year. Um, so that, in a way, you know, I think represents an interesting setback to um, to that kind of process of networking that's been going on. And the, and the reasoning there, I think it's interesting. I mean, um, there is no definitive statement from India saying why Australia... Won't be participating this year, but there are some hypotheses that I have, you know, and it's a little bit unfortunate since um, Australia and Japan in particular have been really enthusiastic about trilateralizing with India since the Trump administration came into place. Right. There was this remarkable two plus two statement between the two countries that, to my knowledge, is the first time that Australia and Japan in a bilateral statement have kind of devoted a paragraph to talking about trilateral cooperation with India. Uh, between them so in a way it is kind of a setback um, but yeah uh, I don't know what do you make of the uh, of the Malabar um, exercise this year which is coming up in the summer
1: yeah I mean I, I think the the frame that you talked about is is exactly right which is that this is an example of a bilateral exercise and drill that um, has evolved into sort of a platform for wider Indo-Pacific cooperation and you see this with other exercises too I mean the Cobra Gold with uh, the US Thailand Alliance the Bali Katan exercises with US Philippines so so that is is the right frame um, and i think you know you're you're absolutely right in the sense that um, you know years ago we were talking about and during the bush administration first There was this idea that you have this quad, right, that Mm -hmm. the United States, uh, Japan, India, and Australia would be able to sort of form this uh, very strong partnership. And then you had the idea sort of die down a little bit, and and it um, reemerged towards the tail end of the Obama administration, that first you'd have Japan involved um, in in the Malabar exercises, and then Australia would sort of be a natural follow-on, and the United States has been calling for this expansion, actually for quite a long time, but India's been hesitant Um, to make to make it done um, very quickly and he wants to sort of pace it Um, so we saw Japan uh, take part last year right and I think some some folks thought that Australia would would be on this year following but I think it shows the fact that uh, you know these exercises and the way they develop it sometimes it takes some time uh, for them to occur and it has to be calibrated with uh, the foreign policies of these different countries and if you have one country that's not aligned um, because you're trying to multilateralize something it uh, create some problems for the other countries, even though things are going well between them, right? Right. Um, and the other interesting thing is, I mean, you mentioned you had you had a, a couple of hypotheses for why why this is happening. And the interesting thing to, to watch, I think, will be how the India-China relationship evolves, you know, based on how, um, as we've talked about before, the Quad was initially received based on these exercises. I mean, you saw Um, The One Belt, One Road conference and India's reaction there uh, Mm -hmm. to what China's been doing. Um, It'll be really interesting to see once we have a few more data points how that relationship evolves. Um, And, of course, the U.S.-India relationship, too, which is, you know, it's still very early on in the Trump administration, but that's going to be, I think, where... um, we should look to for the future of Malabar um, with respect to the multilateralization part.
0: Yeah. Uh, You know, you raised a few interesting things. I mean, I'm glad you brought up the quadrilateral, which I should have uh, mentioned in the introduction. Um, Australian Defense Minister Maurice Payne actually um, mentioned the term quadrilateral engagement um, early on in April, around when uh, Malcolm Turnbull visited India this year. And I wonder if, you know, that partially spooked New Delhi. Um, But, you know, I mean, also, I think another trend is just that India has been um, losing, you know, it's been losing interest in Malabar more broadly uh, going back a few years. I mean, in 2014, actually, more U.S. ships participated in the exercise than Indian ships. Um, And it's been, uh, you know, for New Delhi, it's been less of a priority. And it's interesting because it kind of aligns with broader um, growth in the U.S.-India relationship, right? So in a way, India is actually, you know, moderating its kinetic participation in these exercises while it's increasing cooperation with the U.S. Uh, with things like the logistics exchange agreement and the communications agreement that's currently under um, under negotiation. And, you know, another point I'd emphasize is that this isn't the um, really a major setback to you uh, India-Australia ties. The two countries will uh, host for the first time, um, or at least carry out for the first time, an exercise off the coast of Western Australia this summer, which I think is India's way of sort of making up for Australia's non-participation in Malabar. But it's a shame because it kind of goes against that Uh, you know, that longer-term trend of just uh, networking between these like-minded states. So I I think you're right. We'll just have to wait for more data points here.
1: Yeah, and and also uh, Malabar and with these other bilateral exercises, there's always an interesting dynamic with them because since they start off as bilateral exercises, um, countries do want to multilateralize them sometimes over time, but they also want to make sure that they're calibrating it so that they're getting uh, a lot out of it as the original bilateral participant and I, and I think you, you've seen that with other exercises too so I, I, I'm not sure how much uh, it plays into the specifics in this case but I definitely think that this has been something that is a concern as you multilateralize you also want to make sure that the bilateral components stay strong too and that's a concern right now with the U.S.-Philippine alliance, where actually the multilateralization trend is continuing, but we still are a little bit uncertain on where all the bilateral relationship stands.
0: Right, definitely. That's also a subject for another another discussion. Um, right, you know, I think, um, I think we'll close this discussion out with a uh, brief reflection on this interesting p- deployment for the Japanese Maritime Self-Defense Force's largest warship, the JS Izumo. It's part of the, um, it's the lead ship in the Izumo class. The JS Kaga was actually commissioned earlier this year so japan has two of these ships now which it calls helicopter destroyers uh which is an important thing because these are actually um you know about as large as japan's largest carriers during the second world war um effectively these are aircraft carriers they're just not configured to function as carriers um they don't have the uh, launch mechanism for aircraft they carry helicopters and japan has sent the Izumo on a um Multiple month deployment this summer, where it will uh, sail south uh, into the South China Sea, making multiple port calls in the region where uh, Japan has been gradually increasing its own um, naval presence, I guess, um, over the past couple years. And ultimately, it'll head to the Indian Ocean where it'll participate in this exercise. And uh, the Izumo is one of those uh, Japanese assets that really worries China, where Concerns about Japanese, um, quote unquote, remilitarization, which is a bit of a mis- misleading term in in the context of Japan, but, you know, it gets used anyways. Um, Adizumo c- comes up regularly in those discussions. It's seen as um, something that, you know, Japan under Shinzo Abe is kind of proudly returning to a more um, expeditionary military, more broadly, right? We have the reinterpretation of the security law, which has allowed for a lot of these uh, longer term overseas deployments. Um, and the Izumo, I think is a symbol of of a lot of this. And you know there is kind of speculation that the Izumo, if if needed, could be converted in a pinch maybe a year a year or two to um, enable um, operations of the vertical takeoff variant of the f35, the f35b potentially. So mm-hmm. uh, that's an interesting latent capability that the Japanese could look to develop if, If, you know, Abe and the LDP ultimately get their way down the line and they have a full-on constitutional revision to enable the acquisition of those kind of systems. We have also seen Japan look more directly into offensive systems with a report that Tokyo was considering purchasing Tomahawk cruise missiles uh, to strike North Korea. Uh, But yeah, the Sezumo deployment, I think, is is quite interesting. The optics certainly. Prashant, I was thinking, um, do you want to tell us a bit about, you know, how the... um how you think the seasonal deployment might play out in kind of Southeast Asia? Um, I'm, I don't remember off the top of my head what the port calls are planned for, uh, but it's, uh, but if I recall, I think um, it will be stopping in a few of those places, but uh, Vietnam, Philippines, maybe.
1: Yeah, that's right, and, and it's also Singapore as well. Okay. Um, and, and and that's that's sort of uh, an interesting set of developments if you think about it, because you know there's the general frame for this is the fact that um, there is a lot of uncertainty still in the region um about the u.s role uh, as the trump administration evolves but uh, japan has been seen uh, rightly or wrongly as as a source of uh, potential comfort for these countries that are looking for other countries to play a stronger role in the asia pacific amid uh, certain threats and challenges that are going on Um, and so this is a, a good opportunity for japan to showcase its capabilities right um and so, you know, that's the first part of this. Uh, the, the second part of it, I think, is, is, is the fact that uh, you're also seeing the Japanese play a very strong uh, role defense in terms of uh, defense and security um, in Southeast Asia. Um, and I think this will also showcase that. Um, you know, you've seen uh, Japanese officials broach uh, plans for you know, greater involvement in terms of capacity building for Southeast Asian coast guards. Um, To the extent that they actually exist and obviously some of the stuff has been going on before too Um, But you know the Japan is really interested increasingly in uh, boosting its ASEAN-wide security and defense role Um, and that is, you know, some people see this as a positive uh, trend for the region, but obviously as you pointed out, uh, the Chinese see this very clearly as an effort that's directed um, at them. So I think this is definitely something that's interesting in that context. I think the Izuma is also interesting because it has sort of a, a, a sort of special role in the, in the U.S.-Japan relationship and in the in the Abe era, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that they carried out the, the first mission, um, I think it was, what was it? Earlier this month, I'm forgetting exactly when, but um, uh, guarding a U.S. ship following the the, the sort of uh, changing security legislation that Japan has had. Yeah, those was earlier this um, month. So, earlier this month, right? Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, it, it it is sort of interesting in that context, too, because the, the U.S.-Japan alliance... Um, The Abe administration and and, uh, the Trump administration have been engaging pretty early on, and it's the one relationship in in the Asia-Pacific right now with with the U.S. and and Japan uh, that countries are looking to for some sort of certainty and clarity on on what's going on in Washington.
0: Yeah, yeah. And I'll add another reason, you know, the Izumo doesn't quite please the Chinese. It's actually named after a capital ship in the 2nd sino Sano-Japanese War that was involved in Mm -hmm. some of the uh, earlier phases of the war near uh, Shanghai. So uh, yeah. the memory there, as we know, East Asia, you know, these historical issues tend to loom large. Um, but yeah, Prashant, I think uh, I think that wraps up our uh, naval tour de force of the Asia Pacific for today. Uh, you know, maybe we'll uh, come back and pick up on some of the topics that came up in more detail in future episodes. Sounds good. All right. So uh, to our listeners, thanks for listening to the podcast as always. If you like what you've heard, subscribe. And if you've been a subscriber for a while, but you haven't left us a review on iTunes, please do so. It really helps get the word out about the show. Thanks for listening and we'll be back next week with more.